Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It was January 3rd, 1970, in Lansdowne, in the southern part of Baltimore County, in the state of Maryland, in the United States. A man and his son were hunting near a makeshift landfill. While they were hunting, they made the macabre discovery of a body. It was that of sister Catherine Sesnick, a 26-year-old nun who taught English and drama in the city of Baltimore. She had a mysterious disappearance a few weeks earlier and no one could find a trace of her until that fateful day. Who was Sister Catherine Sesnick? How did she die? Who killed her? Why is she still a topic of discussion after so many years? Today, join us for a closer look at the poignant story of this woman who was so beloved by everyone, except priests. It was November 7, 1969, late in the evening, the telephones in the office of the Judicial Police in Catonsville in Baltimore County began to ring. It was Sister Helen Russell Phillips calling. With a trembling and panicked voice, she introduced herself. Hello, this is Helen Phillips. I'm calling to report the disappearance of my roommate, Sister Catherine Ann Sesnick. She explained that in the late afternoon, her roommate had left the apartment that they both shared at Carriage House Apartment at 131. North Bend Road to visit the shopping center in Edmondson Village. She told the police officers that Sister Catherine Sesnick had planned to do some shopping to buy a gift at a store called Heck Brothers to celebrate her oldest sister's engagement. This was not unusual for Sister Kathy, who often went shopping after dinner. Sister Helen Russell recalled that her colleague had taken her car, a green Ford Matrix. The investigation confirmed that Sister Kathy first went to First National Bank of Catonsville in order to deposit her paycheck and to withdraw $255. She then went to Miles Baker in Edmondson Village to buy some dinner rolls. At first glance, it all seemed rather normal. There did not seem to be any cause for alarm, and so the police did not follow up on the complaint. They merely reassured the nun and advised her to wait for a few hours. Sister Kathy was an adult. It wouldn't do anyone any good to get alarmed for nothing. But Sister Helen Russell was deeply concerned and with good reason. The sister confided to the police that she and her roommate lived a very ordered life and for that reason, it was unlikely Sister Kathy to miss the 11 p.m. curfew. And even when she knew that she was going to be late, she always let Helen Russell know so that she wouldn't worry. Both of them had a very good relationship and each one knew everything about the other. But 23 hours had gone by and Sister Catherine Sesnick still hadn't shown up and Helen Russell had no idea where her roommate could possibly be. There was one detail that would certainly prove to be quite significant. When Helen Russell was on the line with the police, she was not alone at home. 
In fact, Father Gerard Jacob was also there. She had called him a few hours earlier to ask him if he had any news from Sister Cathy, but more importantly to ask him to join her in the search. It was only after he had arrived that she called the police. The hours went by and still there was no trace of Cathy Sesnick. Sister Helen Russell grew increasingly worried and began to pray with all her might that her friend would finally return home. But at 3 a.m., Sister Helen Russell Phillips, Father Gerard Jacob, as well as Reverend Peter McCow, who had recently joined them, decided that was enough. Unable to stand the never-ending wait, they began to look for Sister Kathy on their own while they waited for the police to do their job. On November 8, the temperature did not go about 6 degrees Celsius. The peacefulness of the evening contrasted with the small group's anxious and restless thoughts. They walked in the cold night where the light breeze made them even colder. They took all the paths that Sister Kathy might have taken, checking the neighborhood and searching for even the slightest clue that might lead them to find the nun. They encountered very few people at such a late hour, but despite that, they asked each of them, Excuse me, have you seen a nun? The answer was always no. At around four in the morning, the three of them came face to face with Sister Catherine and Sesnick's car, and they recognized it right away. They were sure that it was hers. How could they not recognize that only green Ford Matrix in town? Their concern then reached its highest point, especially as the state of Sister Kathy's car was disturbing. It was muddy and furthermore parked illegally in front of their building, which was quite unlike Sister Kathy to do since she always took care to respect the law. But what was more disturbing was that the keys were still in the car's ignition. Later, they interviewed the carriage house apartment residents. Excuse me, have you seen Sister Kathy Sesnick this evening? Why? Yes, I saw her. She was driving by in her car. Thank you, sir, replied Father Coop, with relief. Do you remember what time it was? I think it was around 8.30. Yes, that's it. And when I was getting ready for bed at around 10.30, I saw her car from the window. But it was strange that she hadn't parked it in her usual spot and it was pretty muddy too. And screaming, did you hear it too? Asked the young girl. It was coming from your building, she said to Sister Helen Russell. What had occurred during those two hours? No one knew. Several clues already confirmed that it was not Sister Kathy Sesnick who had parked at this location. The three clergy members notified the police once again and they soon arrived on the scene, examined the car and found dinner rolls in the back seat, a broken umbrella and a tree branch. In contrast, they were unable to extract any fingerprints belonging to the perpetrators. After that, law enforcement searched the area. But after making a thorough sweep of the neighborhood, it was clear that Sister Sesnick had disappeared. The story then began to take a turn for the worse. Immediately, Father Gerard Jacob was in the crosshair of the investigators. He was questioned at a length by the police who wanted to know the exact nature of the relationship that he had with Sister Kathy Sesnick. From the outset, the priest told them that right away that she was merely a friend and colleague. They had worked with her at the same school. It was a purely platonic relationship, he stated. But it rang false to the police who wondered why Sister Helen Russell had thought of call Father Coop before calling the police. Why was he the first person she chose to call in this emergency situation? 
In reality, if the police had suspicions, it was because they had information that seriously compromised Father Koob. They knew why they had to point the finger at him before anyone else. Father J. Koob was a priest at the school where the two young women worked. But there was more to the story. While requisitioning his house, the police came across a letter that was clearly written by Kathy, dated November 3, 1969, which was about four days before her disappearance. The letter intended for Father Koob, and within it, Sister Catherine Sesnick freely admitted, and without reservation, her feelings for her lover. Yes, the two clergies were in reality lovers. Furthermore, the letter included some very explicit passages, just short of eroticism. Also included in the letter was the following very interesting passage. My dearest Jerry, I'm sitting comfortably in my bed. I finally just got my period, ten days late, so you can understand the change in my mood. My heart is aching because of you. I think I can finally live a bit better than I did two months ago, just by loving you but keeping this love inside me. I want you inside me. I want to bear your children. The crystal clear letter seriously damaged the reputation of this great man of the church. Catherine Sesnick's words clearly suggested that the two lovers had already had sexual relations, which accounted for her fear of getting pregnant. When the police showed Jerry Coop the letter, he burst into tears and eventually confessed. He confessed, yes, but to what? Father Coop was also concerned about his reputation, that he tried everything possible to conceal his secret relationship with Kathleen Sesnick, with whom he was hopelessly in love. Well, from everyone except Sister Helen Russell, who was obviously well aware of the circumstances surrounding the disappearance. As explained earlier, each one knew about everything there was to know about the other. This naturally explains why Sister Helen Russell's first reflex was to call Father Coop before calling the police. Nevertheless, the confession quelled the suspicions of the police who initially thought that Father Coop had something to hide that had to do with the murder. Yet he only wanted to conceal his forbidden relationship with Sister Kathy. Keep in mind that, obviously this relationship was not religiously proper, especially since they had both taken vows of chastity with the church. Furthermore, Father Coop had already asked Catherine Sesnick to marry him sometime before she took her vows. She turned down his proposal because she really did want to become a nun. But that did not prevent the two lovers from meeting each other in secret, writing each other love letters, and even having sex from time to time. Their illicit relationship was very difficult to hide. In any case, Father Coob had an ironclad alibi for that evening. He was with a friend, and they went to the movies to see Easy Rider and even had dinner together. The story was later confirmed by several testimonies from people who had seen them on the night in question. Additionally, the two polygraph tests that Father Coob had taken that evening proved that he was not with Sister Kathy. The priest was then immediately removed from the list of suspects. The search for Sister Catherine and Sesnick went on for more than two months. It was freezing on January 3, 1970. That made it the perfect time to go hunting. John was happy. It was always a joy to take his son. It was a special moment they shared. He checked his gun and his cartridges, and his son did the same. Warmly dressed to face the harshness of winter, they set off. They traveled a short distance from their home to a secluded part of Lansdowne. It was a gigantic forest, but rather a really large park next to a wild landfall. In any case, it was enough for them to flush out a few animals. 
the two men approached with guns in their hands, ready to fire on any prey that might be passing by. Just near 2100 Monumental Road in Lansdowne, they spotted a shape on the frozen ground, a lifeless body. Quickly, they alerted the police, who immediately rushed to the scene. Law enforcement soon discovered that it was indeed the corpse of Catherine Ann Sesnick. The nun's body was already in quite an advanced stage of decomposition. Nevertheless, they were still able to detect some obvious strangulation marks around her neck, as well as an enormous hole the size of a ping-pong ball at the base of the skull. The body was then turned over to Dr. Werner Splitz, who performed the autopsy and concluded that Kathy Sesnick had died as a result of an intracerebral hemorrhage from a skull fracture on the left temple from a blunt instrument, probably a brick or a hammer. Before she died, she suffered a great deal of violence. At this stage of decomposition, it was not possible to confirm whether or not the young woman had been raped since there were animals that had arrived in the interim and mutilated the deceased cadaver. However, there were still several clues that suggested that there was rape, but that it may not have been the motive for the murder. Just next to her body laid a handbag with her jewelry as well as her valuable watch, which eliminated yet another motive for this villainous crime. The investigation was proving to be rather complicated. Yet, the police were convinced of one thing. They believed that the sister had been killed on the same day of her disappearance, but not at the location where the body had been found. She might have been killed elsewhere, and her body was discarded near the landfill, and then her car was parked awkwardly near her place. But who was Sister Catherine Ann Sestick, really? Who could have been so angry with her, so as to subject her to such horrors, especially when she was loved by everyone? Who wanted to make her pay? Catherine Ann Sesnick was born on November 17, 1942, in the neighborhood of Lawrenceville in Pittsburgh in the state of Pennsylvania. She was the daughter of Joseph and Anna Amulek Sesnick. Her paternal grandparents, Jean and Joanna Tomek Sesnick, were Slovenian. They had immigrated from Yugoslavia to Pittsburgh, whereas her maternal grandfather, Joseph Amulek, was Yugoslavian, and her maternal grandmother, Marta Hudok, was Austrian. Hence the name Sesnick which was not a typical American name. Catherine Sesnick had three brothers and sisters of which she was the eldest. Sister Catherine Ann Sesnick attended Catholic schools and was a student at St. Mary's School on 57th Street and at St. Augustine's High School, which were both in Lawrenceville. She was the valedictorian of her Catholic high school graduating class in 1960, where she was also elected May Queen and president of the senior class and student council. She was constantly surrounded by the sisters, and that was how she became attracted to the religion. In turn, this led her to pursue a religious career. At 18 years old, after completing high school, Kathy Sesnick moved to Baltimore, Maryland to find work. In 1967, she officially took her vows with the church and thus became a nun. At the time of her disappearance, Sister Catherine Ann Sesnick was a teacher at Western High School in Baltimore. She began teaching as soon as she turned 23 in a school exclusively for girls. The school had only recently opened its doors. She taught English literature and drama. Sister Kathy was very well liked by her colleagues and by her students. As a teacher, she was attentive, compassionate, sensitive, sweet, affectionate, and very passionate, which made her very enduring. More importantly, she was still young, which created a familiarity with students who liked to confide in her.
While it was true that she was a nun, she was still very modern. She wore street attire and went out in the evening with the other nuns and sometimes even partied. In short, she was very popular. Most of all, she was aware of many of the dark secrets that her students confided in her. Returning once again to Father Koob, although he had been eliminated from the investigation, the police remained convinced that he was hiding something or at least he was trying to protect someone. But this was the 1970s. At the time, priests and clergy were well protected by the church, which had a lot more power than it does today. Everyone obeyed its orders, while the police were still trying to get any information that they could from Gerard Jacob. The Catholic Church intervened and put an end to the interrogation. The instructions were clear. Father Koob was to be left alone. The police had no other choice but to respect the request. Consequently, the investigation grew cold and was forgotten for some time. Eventually, which is a bit of an understatement, the case was reopened. It had been swept under the carpet for almost 25 years. Then, in 1995, the investigation once again took a center stage, and this time there were a few surprises, and things had taken a 360-degree turn. A young woman who called herself Jane Doe to protect her identity broke her silence and filed a complaint against Seton Keogh High School, where Catherine Ann Sesnick had worked at the time. Her complaint was against two priests, Father Joseph Maskell and E. Neil Magnus, as well as against a gynecologist named Christian Richer, the Archdiocese of Baltimore, and Archbishop William H. Keeler. She accused them of having raped, harassed, and molested her several times. As for the others that she named, she accused them of having participated and covering up the crimes. She claimed that the two priests had also sexually abused other students and engaged in human trafficking with other young school girls in their care. Sometimes later, a young woman named Jean Renner, joined by another girl called Teresa Lancaster, stated that Sister Catherine Ann Sesnick was aware of everything that was going on in the school. She had even once come to ask me whether or not the priests were hurting the girls, confided Benner. The women also claimed that Sister Catherine Ann Sesnick was the only one who helped her and the other girls who had been abused by Father Joseph Maskell. This information was very interesting, to say the least. According to the testimony from the two women, Sister Sesnick seemed to be the only one who was outraged and who wanted to take action against these abuses. According to Teresa Lancaster and Jean Renner, the other clergy and priests were too terrified by Joseph Maskell's dictatorial behavior to dare say or do anything. The two women also added that they firmly believed that Sister Kathy had been murdered because she knew just a bit too much and mostly because she firmly intended on having a serious discussion with the Archdiocese of Baltimore, an ecclesiastical constituency of the Catholic Church in Maryland. During this meeting, it was quite likely that she wanted to discuss the students' concerns. According to testimony from some people, Sister Sesnick had even gathered together evidence and several statements about the abuse from the priest and she were probably about to expose them to the public, which would have plunged the church into an enormous scandal. And like at the school, word got around quickly and eventually Joseph Maskell got wind of it. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Furthermore, the victim who called herself Jean Doe explained that on the evening before Sister Catherine's disappearance, she had been at her home to confide in her and to share with her all the horrors that she had suffered at the hands of the two priests. At one point during the evening, Joseph Maskell and E. Neil Magnus entered the apartment without permission, and when they saw the young girl in tears in the arms of Sister Kathy, they had realized that she already knew the whole story. Jean Doe eventually left the apartment the next day. Sister Kathy had mysteriously disappeared. When the women were asked why they hadn't come forward much earlier, they had an answer right on the tip of their tongue, an answer that seemed very plausible. They feared that they would be persecuted and murdered because of what they might have revealed. Joseph Mascal had so much power that they clearly feared for their lives. It was not until he had died several years later that they were finally able to speak freely. And they were not the only ones. In fact, after these chilling statements, it was revealed that these young women were not the only ones to have been sexually abused since at least 30 other young men and women later claimed that they had also fallen victim to Father Joseph Maskell's vices. At the time, all the victims had come together and initiated illegal proceedings to the tune of $40 million against a perverse priest. They had all more or less suffered the same horrors. They were forced into sexual acts without their consent, threatened with death, drugged, and hypnotized, all with a great deal of animosity. We'll spare you the details. To make matters worse, it was discovered that at the time of the events, several police officers were implicated in the story, including a gynecologist who examined the victims while Father Joseph Maskell went about his business. Unfortunately for them at the time, Father Maskell was one of the most powerful priests in the Church of Baltimore, which made certain that he would emerge unscathed especially since there was no evidence linking Father Maskell to the murder. The case was then dismissed because supposedly it had been filed after the statute of limitations had expired. The Maryland Court of Appeal confirmed the lower court's decision and ruled that the complaint was without merit. 
Indeed, it should be understood that in the United States, especially in cases of sexual assault, it is not possible to file a complaint after a certain time since it would discredit the value of the testimony. Since the details went back to the 1960s and the 70s, Teresa Lancaster and Jean Wenner's complaints had been summarily rejected. In 2016, the police department in Baltimore County decided to reassign the case to new officers due to the fact that the original officers had retired. The new leadership encouraged them to take a fresh look at the case and conduct new interviews as well as additional, more thorough investigation into the accusations of sexual abuse at the high school in Kew. To clear up the case once and for all, after receiving authorization from State Prosecutor's Office, the Baltimore County Police Department exhumed the body of Maskell, who had died in 2001 of a stroke. After the exhumation, the police department did not find any DNA sample that matched the evidence found at Catherine's original crime scene. The police spokesperson, Elise Armacost, nevertheless stated that this discovery did not completely exclude Joseph Maskell from the list of suspects. Eventually, it was unofficially revealed that the diocese had been paying off several of Joseph Maskell's alleged victims since 2011. The archdiocese had taken advantage of some of Joseph Maskell's victims by compensating them, which in itself was an outrage. The worst part of it was that they were offered ridiculously small amounts, a genuine insult given to the seriousness of the act committed. But when Jean would make a shocking announcement concerning Catherine Sesnick, she described that one or two days after November 7, 1969, which was the day of the alleged murder of Catherine Sesnick, Father Maskell invited her to his office to go for a drive with him in his car. Jean was 16 at the time, too young to stand up for herself and to dare refuse the invitation. She had already been abused by the father and fearing that she would have to face an assault once more, she reluctantly accepted. That was when Father Maskell drove her to the wooded area near Fort Meade in a kind of dumping ground. He parked, made her get out of the car, and directed her to a giant dumpster to ask her to take a look at what was inside. It was then that the young girl got the greatest shock of her life when she discovered the body of Catherine Sesnick. There was no doubt she knew her very well and there was no mistaking her. Frightened, the young girl remained motionless before the body of her teacher. Jean claimed that she correctly guessed that the murder must have occurred recently because the body had not yet started to decompose. However, she noticed that larvae and maggots were crawling all over the poor nun's face. In fact, she recalled trying several times to sweep them away while repeatedly asking the priest, Help me! Help me! We have to get rid of the larvae! The priest's only reaction at that moment was to approach the young girl and to whisper in her ears, You see what happens when you say bad things about people? At that moment, she felt so terrified by the threat that she had decided to stay quiet and did not want to talk about it to anyone about what had happened ever. The young girl's disturbing statement would initially be challenged by scientists who claimed that it would have not been possible for maggots and larvae to have lived at the time of the year. But those theories would be soon disproven by the pathologists who performed an autopsy who indeed confirmed the presence of maggots both in the victim's mouth and in the airways but the autopsy report would never be made public. It should be noted that another event had just undermined the investigation. 
on November 13, 1969, which was just a few days after Sister Kathy's disappearance. The body of Joyce Millick, a woman about 20, who strangely resembled Jean, was discovered by two hunters in the spot where she had seen the body of Kathy Sesnick in the Soldier Park training area at Fort Meade. Joyce Mellick was a 20-year-old woman who worked for a liquor distributor in Baltimore. On November 11, 1969, Joyce Mellick had to do some shopping at the Herondale Shopping Center in Glen Burnie, Maryland, before meeting her boyfriend at Fort Meade for dinner. But seeing that his girlfriend did not show up for their date, the young man alerted the police and a search was soon underway. The body of Joyce Mellick was found two days later on the bank of Little Badoixton River by two hunters building a deer blind. Joyce Malek had been tied up and drowned and her body bore obvious strangulation marks, scratches and bruises which proved that she had fought her assailants before she died. The autopsy done by Dr. Isidore Mihalix had confirmed that the cause of death may have been choking or drowning. In addition, there was a deep stab wound found on the 20-year-old woman's throat, as well as 15 superficial cuts on her neck and abrasions on the forehead, nose, and jawline. The investigators at the time discussed a possible connection to Sister Kathy because the two crimes had several similarities which raised their suspicions. Certainly, the religious teacher's body had not been found until 3rd of January, 1970, and not near Fort Meade, but on a pile of trash near a small business in Lansdowne Park, which had implied that she had been transported in the interim. What was disturbing was that the two women had been shopping in the same area. They had similar routines, for example, going to shopping, and had disappeared within a few days of each other. However, the office was unable to conclusively and decisively prove that there was a link between the two cases. That was not all. The murders of Sister Catherine Ann Sesnick and Joyce Malik had nevertheless been linked to the two other murders in the area. In October 16, 1970, which was shortly before the death of Catherine Sesnick and Joyce Malik, Pamela Lynn Converse, a 16-year-old girl, had disappeared while she had been spotted at Herondale Shopping Center in Ann Arundel County, which was also in Maryland. Once more, the body of the missing girl had been found less than a week later, placed between the east and westbound lanes of what, at the time, was Maryland Route 177, which is now Maryland Route 100. It had been said that on October 16, Pamela had attended the prep rally bonfire organized by her high school in Glen Burnie. Later in the evening, the young woman had driven her family's 1967 Dodge Monaco to the Herondale Shopping Center in Glen Burnie, and that was the last place she was seen alive. A year later, on September 27, 1971, a new murder case had rocked the United States. This time, it involved Grace Elizabeth Gay Montaigne, who was then 16 years old, a student at Franklin High School, where she was also a cheerleader. She was even a finalist in the Miss Reister Stan Queen pageant. She too disappeared under similar circumstances. It was very strange. She was seen for the last time at the Reister Stan Shopping Center, a community that was also located in Baltimore County. Her body had been found two days later in the Mount Auburn Cemetery in South Baltimore. However, her murder would be connected to something else. It had been said that she was very interested in the world of fashion and that she wanted more than anything to be able to break into the field. Apparently, she had met someone who had offered her work as a model and after that meeting, she had been found beaten to death a few kilometers from her home.
young girls of the same age living in the same county who were both seen for the last time at shopping centers and who had disappeared suddenly only to be found dead and left in abandoned lots days later. It was a bit too much of coincidence. The most disturbing thing was that none of these cases had been resolved. Had they been victims of a serial killer? Had they also been in contact with Father Joseph Maskell, the case's prime suspect? Had they been abused by him and involved in sexual scandals? There were so many questions without any answers. Even today, the mystery surrounding the murders of Sister Catherine and Zesnick still lingers on. In fact, decades later, the nun's murderers had not yet been identified and it is quite likely to remain as such. However, that is not a reason to drop the case and to stop talking about this horrible homicide. One day, reporters and former students of Sister Kathy decided to bring the case to the public's attention on a worldwide level, even if only out of respect for someone who had taught them so much. Currently, Sister Kathy is at the center of a passionate and fascinating documentary on Netflix called The Keepers. It offers a deep and detailed look at the case, presents interviews, reveals the unspoken, and describes everything that went on in silence during the time of investigation, while also raising some very disturbing questions about the church's role in this case. In their opinion, the church was heavily implicated in covering up evidence and was responsible for suppressing Maskell's abuse over the last few decades. The mini-series features testimonies from women who said they had been sexually assaulted by the priest at Keough High School, just like Teresa Lancaster and Jean Venner. In doing so, the producers and writers behind the Keepers successfully brought the case back into the public eye in May 2017 when they posted the story of Catherine and Sesnick's appalling murder online in order to try and find the killer. The goal was also to expose the ongoing corruption within the Baltimore Police Department and to reveal the powerful pressure that the local archdiocese was able to exert on the investigation so that it would reach a dead end. Furthermore, 37 priests had been charged with similar crimes since the 1980s, but only two of them had actually received a prison sentence. Compared to Making a Murderer, the documentary series the keepers put the focus on the victim who had suffered in silence for so long, as well as on their families who had firmly believed that their sexual abuse was related to the nun's murder. The documentary takes the viewers right to the heart of the criminal case and deeply moves them. As we watch the documentary, we become amateur detectives who are eager to find even the slightest clues that might lead to the truth. The series promises suspense, intrigue, tension, and plenty of surprises throughout every episode. It will quickly become apparent the tremendous amount of work and research producers Ryan White put into making this project. In particular, The Keepers gives a voice to Gemma Hoskins, one of Sister Kathy's former students who, among other things, confided that she had never met anyone like her. In 2013, after she had recently retired, Gemma Hoskins began her own investigation of the nun's murder with the help of a colleague from Keough, Abby Schwab. They both made a very good team and were both highly determined to uncover the truth. Throughout the series, the two women spent a lot of time doing research on the web or in the library. There are scenes that demonstrate the tremendous amount of work accomplished by these dedicated and patient women. Throughout the series, the women have confronted with roadblocks as well as the strange disappearance of key documents. The frustration seemed to keep building up with no end in sight. 
but the most impressive character in the series is Jean Venher herself. In the documentary, Venher, now much older, describes quite candidly and in great details the sexual abuse that she suffered from the priests. She discusses her difficult journey towards healing and explores her painful, buried memories. She also denounces the lies and cowardice of the Archdiocese of Baltimore and is deeply saddened by the failure of the American justice system. The miniseries proved to be a big hit upon its release on Netflix, especially since it came from the team who produced Making a Murderer, which had also created a lot of excitement. Like the other series, The Keepers was produced as an emotionally charged thriller where every episode ended with the revelation, which had made viewers want to watch all seven episodes and then decide for themselves who they believe is guilty. Returning to Father Joseph Maskell in the end, he was never charged with anything despite all the overwhelming testimony against him. He still had the unbeatable power of the Catholic Church behind him. Besides, in the 1970s, while the investigation into the murder of Sister Kathy was just beginning and before anyone knew of the sexual scandals in which Father Joseph Maskell was involved, the investigators frequently asked him if he knew anything if he had anything to declare that might help them since he was the chaplain of the school where Sister Kathy worked. But every time he was asked for an interview, the clergyman eluded them by inventing endless excuses as to why he was unable to comment. This pattern was repeated so often that, once again, the church had to intervene to ask the police to leave Father Maskell alone and to stop harassing him, which, as you may recall, which was the same thing that had happened with Father Jacob. As mentioned earlier, at the time, priests in the church were untouchable, but with respect to Father Joseph Maskell, it was even worse. Here's the reason why. Not only was Father Maskell the chaplain for the high school, where Sister Kathy worked, but he was also the police chaplain for Baltimore County, which you may recall was in charge of the investigation. Not only that, but he was also the chaplain of the Maryland State Police as well as the Maryland Coast Guard. He was very close to the point of being friends with several police officers in the county. He spent time with them, drank beer with them, and spent evenings riding in cars with them as they arrested criminals. It was suggested that he even had a police scanner in his car that he used to expunge the traffic tickets he had received. As you may have guessed, he had more privileges than the average citizen. And that is the reason why young girls had no other choice but to comply with his orders, even the most despicable. He used every opportunity to take advantage of the girls. For example, when he found a girl with alcohol in her bag or cigarettes or even drugs, he threatened to report her and to have expelled her from the school. But when one of the girls would beg him not, he would take advantage of her weakness and then abuse his power by forcing her to submit to him. To make matters worse, he would sometimes trade her, if such an expression can be used, with other priests. While there were many people who defended Father Masco and his reputation, others were firmly convinced of his guilt and wanted to see him charged at any cost. Among the rare few who didn't want to see justice, there was a certain William Story, who worked as a grave digger in a cemetery. He called the police one day and made a shocking announcement. He explained to them how in 1991, during the time when Father Joseph Maskell was at the center of the investigation, he contacted him and asked him to dig a hole of about 3 by 3 meters, but he stipulated that it had to be done at night. The man complied with the priest's orders, and the next day Maskell arrived with a huge number of files and documents. He put everything into the hole and ordered him to cover it with earth. 
It wasn't until years later, when he heard about the lawsuit against Father Maskell, that he was able to reveal that he had taken part in it. To verify his story, in 1994, the police would follow William's story, who would lead them to the exact spot where the documents were buried in order to dig them up. Indeed, William's story wasn't lying. The police really did find the documents they were looking for and then kept them. But what kind of documents were they? Well, in fact, the documents were a collection of psychological evaluations that Father Maskell made when he was a chaplain, but not only that. Among the documents, there were also some overwhelming evidences. Photos of nude underage girls, listeners many say to themselves, well, that's it, we can arrest the perpetrator, we've got him. But that wasn't the case at all. All of the overwhelming documents that police had normally kept on the premises while waiting to arrest Father Joseph Maskell had mysteriously disappeared overnight. They evaporated into thin air without any explanation. Certainly, there were still the testimonies from police officers who were on site and who really had seen these photos, but their testimonies were no longer useful since the solid physical evidence had vanished. No doubt that Father Joseph Maskell had once again used his power with the complicit authorities to get rid of the overwhelming evidence against him and to once more emerge victorious from the battle. Unfortunately, Father Maskell would continue to evade his problems practically unscathed since no tangible evidence existed to confirm these testimonies, even though there were more than enough. Note that following all this, Father Joseph Maskell went to Ireland to continue working as a priest. It had been reported that there was a history of sexual abuse in Ireland by a priest, but there was no evidence that he was implicated in it. The injustice of the case had generated millions of reactions, especially after the release of the documentary, The Keepers. Many people demanded that the body of the priest be exhumed once again in order to collect a DNA sample. You might think, but what good would that do? Well, it would be helpful quite simply, because when Sister Catherine Ann Sesnick's body was found, there was also a package of cigarettes next to her. Naturally, the package would have DNA on it from some unknown person. The intention, therefore, was to compare the two DNA samples. However, the result came back negative. Certainly, there was nothing that proved that the package of cigarettes was linked to the murder of Catherine Sesnick. But today, those same people still hope to find out who killed the nun using that package of cigarettes. In short, even today, millions of people are still trying to come up with an answer to the famous question. Who killed Sister Catherine and Sesnick? While many firmly believe that it was Father Joseph Maskell, there are others who still have doubts due to a lack of solid evidence that could allow the clergyman to be charged. But the best thing about the whole case was that after several decades since the first incident occurred, there are people who are still trying to find Sister Kathy Sesnick's murderer. Keep in mind that many of the people who had hidden and suppressed the truth are still currently alive. While there are still some details about the investigation that are missing, and there are questions that have not yet been answered, it is simply because these same people are still trying to hide the truth. One day, the identity of the person who really killed Sister Catherine Sesnick will be revealed, certainly after these people have died. But we may have to wait for some time to get those answers. That is because, unfortunately, just like in any homicide case, the number one enemy is time since very often it works against them and destroys the evidence that might lead to the truth. As for Sister Catherine Ann Sesnick, she will always remain a memory in the hearts of Americans.
We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.